Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. while we're continuing our new series, The Crossroad, with a message entitled, Valuing the Praise of God. So turning your Bibles to John chapter 7, verses 1 to 13, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. You don't know if you're an obedient servant of God until the day comes when God asks you to do something you really don't want to do, something that involves sacrifice or suffering. That's when you discover whether or not you are all about yourself or your delight is in the Lord. You know, for Jesus, that question, the one of doing the will of God, was always front and center. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. It's in John 4.34. Or I can do nothing of my own initiative. That's in John 5.30. John 6, 38, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Now, of course, Jesus is fully equal to his Father. But as Paul tells us in Philippians 2, he became obedient unto death. And we will see in John the humility and the obedience of the Son. So we come now to John chapter 7. And here I want you to imagine what Jesus was going through. You know, Jesus' ministry has reached a crucial stage now. When John 6 ended, we find that many of Jesus' disciples had deserted him. His revolutionary movement is, in fact, shrinking. His popularity is waning. The crowds are smaller than they ever were before. People are moving on. And there are all sorts of reasons for that. One reason was because opposition to him was growing. The Jewish leaders were seeking to kill him, and it was becoming more and more dangerous to follow Jesus. So when the danger goes up, the crowd size goes down. The second reason the crowds were getting smaller is because Jesus was making remarkable demands on his followers. John 6 ends with Jesus saying that unless they were prepared to feed on his body and blood, well, they'll have no part of him. And people found that a difficult saying. And because he said things like that, well, they no longer followed him. But even if they didn't completely understand him, they did seem to know that Jesus was demanding the complete loyalty of his followers a loyalty that led to complete obedience to him. And it was a commitment that many of them would not give. So people were leaving Jesus because he seemed to be promising suffering to all who followed him. And that's asking too much. Now, if you'd been alive at that time, you'd been watching the ministry of Jesus. Well, you might have assumed that the Jesus movement, which was hot for a while, is now dwindling and would eventually fizzle out. Now, that's a problem. But in John 7, a solution presents itself. It's now October, which is a very important time on the Jewish calendar. The question must have been on everyone's mind. I mean, would Jesus go to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Booths? So let's begin by reading our text. And I'm I'm reading John 7, 1 to 5. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now, the Jews' Feast of Booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you're doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Now, I know that the Feast of Booths, well, that probably doesn't mean a lot to many of us, but it sure did at Jesus' time. You know, the Feast of Booths was one of the three great feasts in Israel. It might be roughly compared to our Thanksgiving, but it really was so much bigger and we can't really picture it. The Feast of Booths happened at the end of the harvest season, just like our Thanksgiving does for us. 
And all Israel was invited to come and travel up to Jerusalem and to celebrate and be thankful for the harvest. It was a thanksgiving, but it was thanksgiving with a twist. Everyone would stay in Jerusalem, not living indoors, but in tents or booths, tiny little structures in which they would live for seven days. And they're supposed to remember that their forefathers had lived in tents or booths for 40 years in the wilderness. You know, they wandered in the wilderness, and then they came to the promised land by the hand of God. And it was because of God's mighty power that Israel lived in their land and could even have a harvest. And and so the booths or the tents, well, they were a reminder of how things once were and how much God had given them today when they were in their promised land. So at the Feast of Booths, well, entire villages in Israel would be completely abandoned and completely empty for seven days. Everyone went to Jerusalem. In fact, you know, the roads would have been completely plugged as travelers got there. And then the city would have been crowded as down every single alley and street, people would build their little booths and they tented there. And even if you lived in Jerusalem, you would build booths on the flat roof of your house and never go into your house for seven days. But the real action happened at the temple. You know, 70 animals would be slaughtered every single day because this feast happened right on the heels of the Jewish Day of Atonement. And then temple trumpets would be blown every day. There was a special ceremony of pouring out of water. It was reenacting the water coming out of the rock at Meribah. And then, best of all, an illumination of the inner court of the temple. You know, there was a grand candelabra and a huge torch parade at night. It was, it was spectacular, and this happened every day, and then people would go back and sleep in booths. That was the Jewish Thanksgiving. There's actually more. The book of Zechariah is one of the books that tells of the great battle of Armageddon. After describing the great horrible battle, Zechariah 14, 16 to 18 says, Then everyone who survives of all the nations that have gone against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of booths. And if any of the families of the earth do not go to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. So the prophet Zechariah predicted that during the millennium, the Messiah would reign in Jerusalem and all the nations of the earth would abandon their cities every year in October. They would journey to Jerusalem to live in tents and to be thankful and celebrate. Now, with this background notice, Jesus' brothers, and there were four of them, they were James, Joseph, Simon, and Jude. Well, these four had a plan to help Jesus with his waning popularity. Why don't you join the plugged road of pilgrims going to Jerusalem and you know what to do? perform miracles and heal and cast out demons and raise the dead and pronounce the beginning of the messianic era, and then you'll have the biggest crowds you've ever had in your life. Now, I call that plan the trap of the success syndrome. You know, there are many who abandon God's plan for their lives because they're trapped in their desire to be successful. I know we all know of pastors who think they're not worthy in any sense unless they have a certain number of people in their pews. But don't just think that this is a pastor's problem. You know, it's true of people who want to be successful as musicians or athletes or entertainers. How about people who want to rise to the top of their company or who want to start a new business and are driven by some standard of success that they want to attain? How about the student who wants to be the head of, you know, their class in school for the benefit of looking successful? Well, you might ask, what's wrong with success? Well, on the face of it, nothing. 
I'm always delighted when someone does well and rises to the top of whatever it is that they're doing. I mean, there is nothing wrong with that. I mean, be the best doctor in the province or be the best soccer coach in the league or be the best mechanic at your shop. At least be the best that you can be. Have high standards for yourself. But have you noticed that there is a darker side to this desire to succeed? I mean, how often is the desire for success motivated by the desire for human praise and the applause of the crowds? See, that was what was behind the brother's recommendation. I mean, they thought, I mean, look at verse 4. They thought that Jesus was motivated by the desire to be known. I mean, they thought he was all about building the biggest ministry ever. I mean, it had never occurred to them that he could do nothing without his father's command. He was not building his ministry. He was a man under orders. His desire was to do the will of the Father. That's what motivated him. It's called obedience. Now, remember, the brothers of Jesus don't yet believe in him. I mean, you look all the way back to John 5, 44. And here Jesus offers a word of condemnation to the Pharisees. Remember, he said to them, How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? That's to say, the desire for human recognition and praise is inconsistent with the desire to have the praise of God. So I want you to consider that dichotomy. Everyone either lives to seek praise from people or they live to seek praise from God. And it just so happens to be that you can't have both. Do you want to be known by God or do you want to be known by people? Boy, that's an important question. If you closely examine your own motivation in all things, you'll soon find whether your attitude is one like Jesus or whether your attitude is one like so many other people in the world, which is it? You can't have both. Have you heard Dr. John's latest series in the book of the Psalms, Finding Pleasure in God? Well, if you haven't, or if you'd like to hear it again, or you want to send it to a friend, we want to send Finding Pleasure in God on CD as our gift to you. We also want to include Dr. John's series on Psalm 42, To the King, accompanied by a limited edition illustration of Psalm 42 on a magnet for your kitchen, your office, or shop, all reminding you of God's faithfulness. These three ministry resources, all free as our gift. Finding Pleasure with God, To the King, and a limited edition Psalm 42 illustration on a magnet. To ask for your free gifts this month, or to offer a gift to support the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. Perhaps you're a people pleaser, simply can't live without the approval of men. And that desire, that hidden passion, that's going to keep you away from the cross. You simply can't be obedient to God when your motivation is the applause of others. And that was the temptation that lay before Jesus. He was being tempted by his own half-brothers to make choices about his ministry based upon popularity. So notice verse 5 again. Not even his brothers believed in him. See, John wants us to know that fact. 
You can tell unbelief, says John, when you see people who can't imagine any other motivation than to win the approval of others. That's Hollywood, but not just Hollywood. But it takes an unusual and godly person who lives for just one thing, to seek the approval of God and to be quite willing to fail to win the approval of anyone else. And so we come now to John 7, verse 6. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. I want you to see the irony behind all of that. The brothers want Jesus to show himself to the world, and it turns out that's what Jesus wants as well. But that's where the similarity ends, doesn't it? Jesus will show himself to the world as he hangs bleeding and dying on a cross. But Jesus also knows that moment has not yet arrived. There is a proper moment for that. It's the time which the Father has set. The Father will offer up his Son, not at the Feast of Booths. At the Feast of Booths, Israel was looking for a glorious Messiah to rule the nations. But at Passover, well, there the talk is of a slaughtered lamb, one who gives his life so that the angel of death might pass over. So Jesus knows that the Father has written the script for him, and he will not step onto the stage until the script indicates that this is his moment. In contrast, the brothers have no script. They have no story to tell. They have no divine mandate. That's why they think that any time is a good time to step out onto the stage. But that's where we see a second trap. You know, the first trap is to become trapped in in the expectations of others, or what I've called the success syndrome. That is, success in the eyes of others and not in the eyes of God. But there is a second trap, and it's the trap of relying on human wisdom rather than the wisdom of God when we make major decisions. The trap is that we serve God according to what we think. And I see that all the time. People serving God according to their own wisdom, out of their own ideas of what might be good, not according to the script. I mean, by that, the script called the Bible. Well, let me illustrate. See, a lot of people approach their marriages in that way, that is, without a divine script. Many approach their child raising that way. Some approach their jobs that way, their future plans, their career choices, their marriage partners. All decisions in life are without a script. Some even believe it's freeing not to have a script. And that way I can choose myself. I can make my own sexual choices. I can make my own moral choices, my own choices over how to use my money. I can draw up the map as I go along. I understand the seduction of that. It feels like we're the captain of our own ship, charting our own course and creating our own future. And it's exhilarating. But understand this. Jesus never thought that way. His delight was to do the will of him who sent him. How different that was. What a different source of delight that was. So let's continue to read. Jesus is still speaking to his brothers. Now we're in John 7, 7 to 9. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. And after saying this, he remained in Galilee. So here Jesus shows us how to avoid the third trap that his brothers have fallen into. And the difference between Jesus and his brothers is that the world hates Jesus, but they can't hate his brothers. And the reason they hate Jesus is because he's condemned the evil of this world. Please don't miss that point. When we hear Jesus using the word world, it's not a reference to the planet Earth. Jesus is the great creator of the world, and he called it good. No, no. He means something else by world. I suppose there's no better explanation of what Jesus meant 
than the explanation that John would later give us in 1 John 2, 15 to 16. There he would say, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Let's see if I can put that in terms we can all understand. The world functions according to three principles, the love of sex, the love of money, and the love of power. It comes from the evil one. And the religious establishment in Jerusalem loved especially money and power. But Jesus signals something very significant. You're either with him and therefore against the world's systems, or you're in league with the world and an enemy of Jesus. The world either hates you or it embraces you. You either belong to God or you belong to the world. As I think about those things, I'm right now very well aware of a pastor who has recently divorced his wife and then has renounced his faith. Well, prior to this, he had spoken about the importance of sexual purity, especially among young people. That is, he was known for teaching the only place for sexual expression is between a husband and his wife. But now, having renounced his faith, he said he was sorry that he had written those things. And then just the other day, I saw a picture of him as he was marching in a parade which celebrates sex outside of marriage, sexual freedom, sex without a script, sex not in obedience to God, but sex outside of God. And as I looked at the pictures that were taken of this former pastor, surrounded now by the community of the world, he looked, well, how can I say it? (laughs) He looked genuinely happy, no longer an outcast of this world, no longer the subject of derision. Now the world genuinely welcomed him. He had become one of them. But strangely enough, this former pastor had gotten it right. He knew that in order for the world to embrace him, he needed to renounce Jesus. He actually knew the truth, a truth that so many others have deceived themselves from believing. You see, the truth is this, you must choose. Either you're a friend of the world or you're a friend of Jesus. You you can't be both. Now we come to verses 10 to 13. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said he is a good man, others said, no, he's leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. There are several important points here. You know, first we need to address the matter that Jesus seems to tell his brothers that he's not going up to the feast and then he actually goes. So we have to ask and answer, was he lying? Well, in fact, of course he's not. His brothers specifically asked him to go to the feast in order to bolster his sagging attendance numbers at his rallies. And Jesus said he was not going to do that. That's what he told them. Rather, he goes privately as one of the pilgrims, as one who is obedient to the Mosaic commands for males to go to the feast. And so after all the travelers had gone, he goes and does not use the feast as a chance to regain his popularity. We're going to see this tomorrow, that he goes with his disciples and he's going to be instructing them. And this festival will be an opportunity to declare in the midst of the beautiful light parade in the evening, that festival of lights is actually about him. He's the light of the world. We're going to see that there is so much for him to do at the feast, but he is determined to only do that which the Father has commanded him. Now, one more brief point. You're going to notice that John says that the Jews were looking for him at the feast. 
When John uses the phrase, the Jews, he's not using that phrase as we might use it today. See, John's not talking about the Jewish people or about the nation of Israel. The Jews for John means the Jewish religious leaders. They were waiting in the weeds for Jesus. They were looking to discredit him. But here we see a division among the Jews, that is, among the rabbis. Some, as you might remember, like Nicodemus, we met him all the way back in John chapter 3. He met with Jesus before, and he said that Jesus was a good man. And there were other Jews, like the high priest and the majority of the Pharisees. They said, we've got to stop him. He's leading the people astray. He's a genuinely evil man. And so as Jesus goes to Jerusalem, he knows he's walking into a hornet's nest. And again, if Jesus had whipped up the crowd that was coming from Galilee, he could have used them to his advantage. Well, yes, but he's motivated by only one thing. He's constantly asking this question, what does the Father want me to do? And in all of this, we are led to ask ourselves the most searching of all questions. Do we want to follow Jesus? The world says Jesus won't like you if you do. And if you do, you're going to have to do what I did. You'll have to abandon the praise of men. And you're going to have to value the praise of the Father. John, I want to go back to uh, near the beginning of the message where you said this, and I, I thought it was profound. He says, and when the danger went up, the crowd size went down. You know, I think that is very descriptive of even what goes on in our day. We don't have to be back in that day to know that that's what we're apt to do as well. Yeah, I know that, you know, following Jesus at times can be very difficult. Um, ben, I have a very dear friend who, um, without going into all the details, you know, he was being persecuted. Um, and, um, and in his church where people were saying to him, look, I know that you're being persecuted, uh, and we, we're behind you all the way, but we're just, uh, just going to move on because I just don't want to go through difficulty. And so basically they left him all alone dealing with, uh, with accusers. And uh, I think that's a common human experience. Uh, people don't like trouble. And, and that's what's remarkable about Jesus. I mean, he just carried on in the same way because his focus was on the praise of God. Thanks so much, John. We're looking forward to tomorrow as we continue our series, The Crossroad, a study in the book of John, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Have you heard? Back to the Bible Canada and Laugh Again are inviting you on a cruise. February 7th to the 16th, 2020, We'll be setting sail for the Southern Caribbean, and we want you to join us for a nine-night cruise adventure that will leave you not only physically refreshed, but spiritually as well. Experience ports of call, including Aruba, Bonaire, and Curacao. Dr. John Newfeld will be joining us, providing amazing Bible teaching that will inspire and deepen your walk with Jesus. Phil Calloway will lift your spirits and perhaps make you laugh in a way you've never laughed in years and be encouraged by the music of friends Shane and Angela Weeb. It's a fantastic opportunity for a vacation while experiencing great Bible teaching, laughter, and fellowship. So for more information, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or head over to backtothebibletours.ca. 
That's 1-800-663-2425 or visit us at backtothebibletours.ca.